Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wehrman coming to you live from Dreamagine Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call. And all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for joining in, for tuning in this Friday of Memorial Day weekend. Hope everyone's got uh, good plans this weekend uh, to, uh, to enjoy the weekend. But um, also remember why we have the weekend in the first place uh, as well. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, coming up after the break, um, we have Pepe Serrano of FC New Orleans. They are a brand new uh, member of the Gulf Coast Premier League and um, look forward to, to chatting with Pepe after the break to uh, to talk about FC New Orleans, but also talk about his background. I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty good conversation uh, too about kind of where he's from and his journey and his path to uh, to to play the game of, of soccer in America, but also then to, to stay a part of this game and building the game as well. So look forward to chatting with him after the break uh, coming up here in just a few moments to to, to discuss that in FC New Orleans and, uh, and their ambitions as a club and, and what they're seeing as well with the Gulf Coast Premier League. Etc. So, um, but first, to kind of kick off the show, more legal issues. Um, you know, yesterday we were we were talking again about how there's a, a U.S. soccer board member suing a U.S. soccer member, and and there this is part of a, an overall attempt to ultimately take control of of the entire space below major league soccer and consolidate it under the USL. That's one of the, one of the ways to kind of look at this as you process what's going on and to, to, to try to create at the very least, um, an opportunity to, to force, um, clubs to enter the USL system of leagues to to be able to play so this is um this is that that case is beyond just a simple branding issue and a a sponsorship issue it really is about um the american soccer ecosystem at large outside of mls and if you don't have access to number one meaning mls that level at this point 
then your best option is then to go down and try to try to connect and collect everything below you because that's going to make you stronger and um, even if major league soccer comes to the usl later and says hey we want to buy or we want to merge and let's put all this into one thing um usl even then has a stronger bargaining position for that so there there are a lot a multitude of reasons as to why um, the USL would be interested in in forcing a merger or forcing uh, legal proceedings, and um, you know it's it's just more of the same within U.S. soccer. And this is precisely because U.S. soccer doesn't follow the rules itself in regards to FIFA, and it doesn't force its members to do the same, even though it is empowered. And they and they will argue. Sunil Gulati, Carlos Cordero, they have argued in the past at saying that, that U.S. soccer can't tell a business what to do. That's a lie. Uh, the truth is that Bylaw 103 mandates that U.S. soccer and every one of its members follows FIFA rules. So that is, that is an untruth that is, has been propagated, has been spoken over and over again, but it's not true. Um, the truth is, is that Bylaw 103 states that U.S. soccer has the authority to not only follow the rules itself, but to force its members to follow the rules, to be a member in good standing. All of those things apply if if a company or a league or a club doesn't want to comply. They are free to do so outside of U.S. soccer sanctioning. So no one's forcing a business to shut down. They just can't operate under U.S. soccer. The, in other words, you should not be able to get your cake and eat it too, right? That expression. That is, that's what's going on here. Right now, U.S. soccer, as well as MLS, as well as the USL, as well as other leagues are getting their cake and eating it too, meaning they're getting to do what they want in the areas that they want to do them. And, and then they're following FIFA rules in some areas, and yet they're still getting FIFA sanctioning, and that shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening for the Federation, and it, and it shouldn't be happening for its members. And Bylaw 103 makes it clear that that is not acceptable. So, so that's one legal area. That's one situation that is, is going on that, um, you know, that, that we've got to keep an eye on. The other area that, that uh, is, a, is a legal issue, and it's just one of them. There are many, but one of them that has an update is that relevant sports who are in court against U.S. soccer because U.S. soccer is trying to keep them from running their business. So they, will, they won't interfere with MLS and tell MLS you've got to comply with FIFA rules. But they will step in with relevant sports and say, you have to follow FIFA rules. And looking at, at, at what's going on, it's, it's not a matter of relevant not following FIFA rules. Relevant has been following FIFA rules and, and been running the International Champions Cup you know, for years. That's not what is at stake here. What is going on is that Major League Soccer is married to the Federation through a no-bid contract with Major League Soccer's other company, Soccer United Marketing. So you have MLS, you have U.S. Soccer, 
And connecting the two is a separate company equally owned by MLS. MLS is a second company, their sister company, whatever you want to call it. It could be called MLS 2.0. It could be called, you know, the Sunshine Club. It, in this case, it's actually called Soccer United Marketing. Some. You have MLS, some, U.S. Soccer. And they're connected through some, which is a commercial marketing agreement between MLS and U.S. Soccer. So, U.S. Soccer is trying to do the bidding of MLS in this case. They are trying to prevent competition in the marketplace and keep relevant sports from bringing in and doing matches like the International Champions Cup. They're trying to prevent MLS from having to compete for eyeballs, compete for quality, etc. So when you look at what's going on, in, in the court case and what relevant sports is trying to say is, look, this has been going on for a while. We've been doing our business. Now, all of a sudden, U.S. soccer saying that this, you know, this won't work. And, and it's a stall tactic. U.S. What U.S. soccer is trying to do, and they've done this before to 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 Charlie Stilitano and others, is they will they will drag things out and try to kill you by by slowing things down to a pace where you can't operate. And they effectively weaken you to the point where they put you out of business. So what, what Relevant Sports is trying to do is argue in court that they should be allowed to operate their business and that the court should step in and tell U.S. Soccer, you can't just arbitrarily shut people out or shut people down. You, there, there has to be cause. And, and, and you, have to, you have to show that cause to be able to do that. U.S. Soccer is doing their typical you know, flip-flop on FIFA. You know, on one hand, they have no time for FIFA rules. On the other, when it becomes convenient, they want to try to turn around and go, hey, you shouldn't even be hearing this. This should go to, you know, FIFA or an arbitrary body over in Europe somewhere, and and you should go through that process. Is this part of the slow walk that U.S. soccer does so often to its opponents? And... And really, when you look at the way U.S. soccer is operated, when you look at some of the contracts that are in with the NWSL and the players and the fact that they have to play, you know, two out of every three years in the NWSL, they want to be on the national team. You have all these different things. You look at it, it's, it's racketeering. I mean, it's, it's just like straight up, you know, uh, crime family, crime boss, you know, mob stuff that you see. I mean, it it's... It's very much cartel-like in, in the way that it's operated in, in some of these situations where there's one set of rules over here for you, there's another set of rules over here for you, and you know we, we will go by the courts on certain things, but on other things we've got our own rules. And, and you see this just play out over and over again, and, and instead what we should have is a merit-based system. If you're good enough, you should play. If you're good enough, you're old enough. If you're good enough, you should qualify. Now, once you get to a level, if you're a club, should over a period of year, two, three years, should you have a plan in pr place and proof that you can meet standards at that level? So if you're a club in the third division coming up to the second division and you've got to prove that by the end of your second year, you're going to be 
you know, in a stadium of 5,000 with, with proper locker rooms and this and this and this, and, and you got to be able to show that you can afford to, you know, operate at, you know, a, a budget level, you know, commiserate with, with that level of the league, et cetera, with, with, in terms of your finances. Yes. I mean, that happens around the world. That's no brainer stuff. That's how it should be. If you're a player, you should be good enough. You should be able to go. You should be good enough. If you if you are an executive, if you're a referee, if you're a coach, if you're good enough, you should you should get the opportunity. It should be about results on the field, and it should be about producing players, developing players. We had on Terry uh, Igwe yesterday, and he was talking about that that coaches know how they want to play, but oftentimes feel so pressured to play more direct and get away from a possession-based style for one because they feel all this pressure from the parents to win win now if you lose if you lose a result it's the end of the world parents are going to pull their kids out that's that's not a a an environment that is built on development that is an environment that that is 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 built on other motivations well all of the, those aspects are are precisely byproducts of the dysfunctional system of U.S. soccer, period, plain and simple. They created the mess, then they point fingers at everyone else who complain about the mess. And that's what we see here. We see this with Charlie Stilatano in Relevant Sports. We see this over and over again. We see it with the, the, the USL and the UPSL. We see this with the women's national team. We see this with the NASL. I mean, we can keep going on and on and on and on. U.S. soccer is failing America, period, plain and simple, failing this country for not following FIFA rules. If they would just get their house in order, follow FIFA's rules, and and make sure that they themselves also implement Bylaw 103 and make sure that all of American soccer who 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 are members of U.S. soccer follow bylaw 103 which means fifa compliance in all areas and all ways if if that were to happen then over time all of this stuff would change all of it would change and there's meaningless there's there 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 are so many excuses as to why it can't change people get paralyzed with what is versus what should be we don't look at how things should operate and figure out how to get there from where we are today. Instead, we just get paralyzed with what we see today. And when we do that, we, we, we short ourselves as a country. And, and we definitely um, are not uh, doing all the necessary things to get us going in the right path. So thanks for tuning in to the show today. Uh, really... Um, I really hope that this this case with relevant sports and the other cases begin to get U.S. soccer back into a posture of humility and service and, and following FIFA rules and ensuring all of its members do the same. Because American soccer would explode if that happened. And, it, and it's not. And so then you have to start asking the question, why aren't we? Thanks for tuning in to the show. We will have Pepe Serrano coming up after the break. Our sponsor for today, for this show, is Charity Water. Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people all over the world. They are changing lives by changing people and and making uh, people's lives better. 
changing entire villages. It's incredible work that they're doing. Check them out at charitywater.org. Um, they, they are a company, they're an, they are an organization worth following and supporting. And um, I, I hope that you go and check them out and, and support them as well. So thanks for tuning into the show. We will have Pepe Serrano coming up right after this. Welcome back into the show. We are really excited to have joining us Pepe Serrano of FC New Orleans, Director of Operations for FC New Orleans. Pepe, how are you doing this morning? Good, good, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming on the show, man. We really do appreciate you uh, spending some time with us this morning. Um, give us a little bit of background about, you know, Pepe Serrano. Who is Pepe? What, you know, what, what's your background and, and you know, what, what drew you to the game of football, game of soccer? Absolutely. I hope I don't get into any form of identity crisis or anything, but, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, I'm originally from, from a small town in Texas called Browns there at the southernmost tip. Um, you know, I've been playing soccer since I can remember, um, it's always it's been part of my culture. My parents are of Mexican descent, um, and you know I've, I've always played in in you know the the government sponsored you know um, systems, the leagues. Um, I went uh, I went to Baylor University. I played played some soccer there. Uh, then I came to New Orleans for for grad school, uh, which is where I became and you know I started getting involved in the the local scene here. Um, partnered up with a couple of different people, started playing kind of at a, at a higher level. I, I wanted to keep that competitive um, kind of side to me. Uh, unfortunately, recently I had to retire due to injuries, and, and now I'm kind of on the administrative side uh, of things and just trying to advance the sport. So 
you you're obviously um, with with your name, you know, from the east side of London or southern side <laughs> of Liverpool. Um, give us a little bit of background about you know what it was like growing up in in Texas, playing, um, and and you know learning the game, playing the game. You know what was that like for you? Your upbringing, being around the game as a player, uh, as a youth yeah, player. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a that's a great that's a great question. And I feel like that's had a you know it's it's been fundamental in in both my upbringing and, and forming of, as a person as well as a soccer player. You know, Brownsville is about ninety eight percent Latino or Hispanic, um, and so soccer is just it's part of the culture. It's part of what you do. It's 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 a it's a way of life you know it's it, everybody plays it whether you're good or you're bad um there's so there's just so much talent I, I mean i can't emphasize how much talent there is there and there's just not there's not a ton of attention paid to it but um yeah i mean it's it yeah it started at a young age and uh i always tell the story that i started off playing playing forward of course every kid wants to score goals right and um, I wasn't very good, so they moved me to uh, to midfielder, and they're like, well, you can't bother anybody there. Um, eventually, I wasn't good at that either, so they said, well, he's he's a little bit taller than most. Let's put him at a, you know, let's, let's make him a defender. Uh, wasn't any good at that either, and so they're like, well, I guess let's try him a goalkeeper, and I was semi-functional there, and I've been there ever since, probably the age of 9 or 10 when I became a goalkeeper. Um, you know, I stand at 6 foot 3, which is, fairly uncommon for uh kind of latin americans or, or people of mexican descent and so i kind of got my hands in front of me and, and started seeing some shots and that's how i became a goalkeeper um you know like i mentioned brownsville is a it's an interesting place to, to grow up um it's a, it's a beautiful culture it's a border culture but it's also american and mexican culture at the same time um the people are lovely the people are very passionate um and so it's it's a it's a wonderful place to to, to grow up. Um, I think that you know that definitely helped me, you know, moving forward. Uh, there's a bit of a culture class when I got to Baylor, which is where I played college. Um, you know, that school at the time was somewhere between 85 to 90 percent uh, white American, uh, a culture that I hadn't really been exposed to very much naturally, coming from where I come from. Um, so there was a, a kind of a there was some growth there. Um, and, you know, I was, I was able to kind of learn the different, learn the more American way of playing soccer, um, seeing a little bit differently, you know, back then it was kind of that, you know, physicality and speed was the name of the game in American soccer. And of course that's shifted. Um, it's a little bit more diverse, um, you know, but from a goalkeeper, you know, from a goalkeeper standpoint, you're able to see the entire field, you're able to see different strategies and, um, that was excellent exposure there um, to where I am now here in New Orleans, which um, there's a, a substantial uh, white American population. Uh, and there's also, you know, there's also a, a decent amount of people of, of color, not only African-American, but there's a, a kind of quickly, rapidly growing, um, mainly Honduran population, but just kind of Latino population in general. So I want to go back for just a second to uh, your experience because I this is a part of the American soccer story to me that is not told or exposed enough, which is the 
mixing of backgrounds or mixing of cultures. Uh, you grew up in an area that was predominantly Latino, and that's you know comfort. You know you're 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 there. It's 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 everyday life. You you leave that. You go to a school in Baylor where you know it gets flipped on its head, and now you're the you're the fish out of out of the sea kind of thing. Um, and you're and you're having to kind of you know figure out life culture relationships you know I, not not just the soccer piece but we're talking every aspect 24/7 7 days a week 365 a year it's a different it's a different life etc talk a little bit about that transition what that was like to leave you know a culture that is your, you know, your roots, your upbringing, all of that, and you, you walk into a different way of life. You got a transition on the field, but you've also got a massive transition going on and taking place um, off the field uh, at the same time. What, what, what was that like uh, for the audience? Like, what, what is that experience? Because I, I really want people to understand. Because. I, to me, the game brings people together. It brings cultures together. It, it exposes us to different things, different elements, etc. I've I've experienced it myself, and I, I'd love to hear your experience in that. Absolutely, and and I think you you hit the nail on the head there um, when you said that. Kind of, my, I got flipped on my head almost in, in a cultural sense. That culture clash was was big. Um, it was it's definitely the the hardest thing you know to date. The hardest thing I've ever had to do was leave that comfort zone, you know, leave that culture, leave your family. Um, Brazil is not a, a city that exports people in any way, you know, sport or otherwise. Um, you know, typically you grow up in Brazil and, and you stay there and everything's nice, everything's comfortable, the food is delicious, right? Why would you leave? You're right on the Gulf, you're right by the beach, you're right by another country, it's fantastic. Um, you know, from, uh, right, you know, when I was finishing up high school, I I had a couple of, of really wonderful opportunities to stay in town. Um, I decided to leave, right, and then I get to Baylor, and it's, like I mentioned, it's, it's a predominantly white place. Not only is it a, a predominantly white place, but um, the, the incoming students that are of white American descent um, also have not been exposed to, you know, a, a persons of color uh, in any, you know, great kind of magnitude. They've also been in their own... Uh, bubble, not not to say in any way, you know, discriminatory or anything, but I'm coming from my bubble, they're coming from their bubble, and so it's a it's an interesting class there, and and I can I tell you I always tell the story that when I, you know, the the first I mean, the second night I was I was at Baylor, which is in in a town called Waco, Texas. I was the, the first night I was in Waco. Um, they have this kind of you know the social event, so people can meet each other. Uh, the, the squad, or I'm sorry, the the, the campus quad area, um, where the freshmen from the male dorms and the the freshmen from the female dorms, they all come together, uh, and they the, the men serenade the women, and there seems some you know just typical, uh, you know, American songs. I can't remember what songs they were, but I'm sure there was something along the lines of you know, journey or something. And um, we serenade the, the women, then we go and, and introduce ourselves. And, you know, in Mexican culture, I'm sure you know, Daniel, when you introduce yourself to someone or you say hi to someone of the opposite sex, 
you lean in for a kiss on the cheek. Um, well, that wasn't something that, <laughs> you know, the ladies I was introducing myself to were, were accustomed to. And so my first encounter um, with this incredibly nice young lady, and, and I'll forever remember because she was so nice to me, and I approached her and I said, hi, I'm Pepe, and I lean in for a kiss, and she didn't know what to do. And 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 she she said, well, I mean, what are you doing? I said, I'm sorry, where I come from, this is how we introduce ourselves. And so she nicely enough kind of reciprocated the kiss on the cheek. Um, but that just kind of, that was a defining moment. That's when I realized I'm in a totally different world, right? Um, and, and that kind of, there's a parallel there, you know, between just my personal life and, you know, soccer. Again, I was coming from a place, soccer is life. Soccer is every, everybody's passion. You know, if you're not, if you're not playing it, you're watching it on TV or you're, you know, at a family event and because there's a big soccer game or it's just a regular Saturday and there's a Liga MX game, which is of course what we follow there. Um, and so you know, getting going to Baylor and you know starting training, meeting some of the other guys from around there. Um, a lot of these guys were in that, you know, that um, much maligned, which I'm not a huge fan of either. But that's neither here nor there. Um, they're in that pay-to-play system, right? They come from very wealthy backgrounds. They're all kind of structured in the same way, and um, they all almost know each other, right? Because they've, they've been playing in these major tournaments, these incredibly expensive tournaments. And so, like you said before, I'm kind of a, a fish out of water, and there were a couple of us there. Um, and we had to kind of a, adapt to that system, but also you know, keep hold strong to our roots and, and bring some diversity to an otherwise just kind of a, a just a, a one-color team, if you will. No, I, 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 that is so good. The insight there is, is fantastic, and I, I really appreciate you taking some time to kind of walk down memory lane there for a moment for the audience to kind of give some color to, you know, what that experience is like. I, I know in my own life, um, you know, the the mixing of cultures within the game was important. It was something that I... And I think I think for me personally, it came from the fact that my introduction to the game was, you know, from a, a it was a white family, but they had gone to Brazil as missionaries when we were like four years old. So they here was one of my buddies' family. They move away. They come back like a year and a half later, and you know we're hanging out. They're in town for a few months uh, before they went back to Brazil. And, you know, it was it was like, we don't really want to play baseball. We don't want to play American football. We're not that interested in basketball. All we want to play is football or what you Americans, they, they, they had already kind of adopted the culture of Brazil, like you Americans call soccer. <laughs> and that was my introduction to the game. And, you know, but that that culture piece really stood out to me. And it and as I you know, grew up and then having kids, I valued that. So I always sought that out, um, for, for my own kids and still do, uh, we regularly play pickup soccer and it looks like, you know, the United Nations, we have guys from Colombia, from Honduras, from Poland, um, that, that, you know, Germany, all these different cultures mixing, um, you know, got a guy, uh, a couple guys that come out African. I mean, like, not African-American, like 
actually African. Um, and, and the great thing is, is when you're mixing that culture, like before the match, after the match, you're sitting around talking and you just, all the stories and the background and all of these different aspects, it's just fantastic to, you know, to take in. And it, it's one of the things that I love about the game and, and love being involved in the game. And it's something that I'm passionate about in terms of the country. I want to see us embrace um, our our lineage as a as a melting pot of cultures, and I think American soccer would be better for it if if we um, systemically welcomed in all cultures. Uh, doesn't mean that every club has to have you know a full on integration type system. Uh, I'm I, I f- you know firmly believe like that there's plenty of room for a, a Polish club and a you know a club that's uh, primarily Latino and, and whatever, like, I, I'm not saying that every club has to have a certain number from each background, but when you have a system that welcomes everyone, regardless of your background, you, you're just naturally going to experience what you kind of went through in college, leaving what you knew and then experiencing the unknown. But I think you would, you know, uh, probably say that you're, you're better for it in terms of being well-rounded and getting to know in different cultures and different experiences. And I, and I felt that, you know, getting the, building those relationships, um, and, and seeing different points of view and, and, and all of that. And then, you know, seeing that kind of play out in the community as well is, is, is one of the beautiful things about this game in, in my view. Um, and you know, y- your story you, you come from Texas, you go to Baylor, then you end up in New Orleans with grad school, and then you, you basically stay, right? And you hang out, you're, you're there. Did you, did you keep playing for a while? Is that something that was, you know, I know you said you had to hang it up for injuries, but, it, I mean, is that something you really were passionate about playing as long as you possibly could? Um, oh, or... ab- ab- absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't let you No, no, that, go ahead. But I, I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's. You know the, the the sport. You can only stay away for so long, whether it be whether it be playing or you know helping develop a, a club or coaching, um, or you know whatnot. Um, I was here for a couple of years. I wanted to focus on school. I said, you know, soccer's probably behind me, and of course that itch again, right? And um, I started seeking out some options. It started out with you know a little pickup soccer. There was a local co-ed league. Um, and you know, that, that's when I met, um, you know, Jonathan Rednauer, who's the vice president of the, the Gulf Coast Premier League, the league that you know, FC New Orleans plays in now. Um, and he had some, some incredible ideas and a lot of his ideas, you know, resonate with a lot of the ideas that you've portrayed on your show before. And so, uh, I don't know if you guys are the same person, but it's a little bit odd. Um, I'm sure you guys have talked before. But, um, yeah, I mean, he kind of, he helped me scratch that itch, right? He, he said, okay, yeah, here's this kind of co-ed team, but I'm starting this, this team that's aiming to be a little bit more serious, a little bit more competitive. Um, there's an established team in town, um, you know, but they're not engaging in terms of, of community. And that was something that irked me. Um, it was more, um, why have I never heard of this higher profile team? And it, it you know, and, and they they were trying really hard, but there just wasn't 
you know, a, a liaison, almost a cultural liaison, um, which is something important when you're building a team is who does the team represent? Does the team represent the city that it plays in? Does it represent a subsect of the city, a specific dar- dar- target demographic or population? But, but really it should be representing the entire city, right? Um, and so that that was something that, that Jonathan and I always discussed and, you know, we want to appeal to some of the players from the, you know, the pay to play, which is here. It's the Louisiana fire camp. We also want to go to the high schools and see what kind of, you know, the players who can't afford to play and pay for play, what can they offer? These are also new Orleans people. How can we bridge the gap between these two and and almost, you know, make it representative of, of the city. So, as you have been around New Orleans for a little while now, and you and you player, you transition into this role, director of operations, FC New Orleans. What what mm-hmm. was that conversation like in the beginning? Um, and what were the you know what were the the dreams when when you guys start having this conversation about? FC New Orleans building a club and and starting something there in the city that's of the city. Absolutely, and yeah, and I, I realized I really answered part of your question before, and so I think I'll answer it, which will help lead up into this next question you asked. And so, you know, I started playing at what was formerly the Louisiana Premier League for the uh, Louisiana Fire senior team, um, which was made up of mainly academy players and a couple of other local players. Um, unfortunately, for one reason or another, that team kind of failed to take off after one season. Um, and, you know, I was, I was traded to, to Matagua, uh, who has um, won multiple championships within the Gulf Coast Premier League. It's one of the one of the kind of bigger juggernauts of the league, even currently. Uh, an incredibly talented team, uh, New Orleans-based. Um, I played for them for a couple of seasons. And, you know, I, I had this injury. I had a, um, a hip flexor issue that just kind of never resolved. I decided I to hang up my, my boots, hang up my cleats. Uh, but Jonathan and I, naturally, I was in the same league, and we always kept in contact, or good friends, actually. And I said, Jonathan, I'm, I'm retiring, but you and I know, you know, how, how passionate I am about this sport. What can I do? I mean, whether it be in you know in the league league operations, what can I do? Is there a place for me there to kind of be a liaison between the Latino and the American community? Um, fairly well spoken. I've, I've been in the American community for a long time. Um, I feel like I can bridge that gap. I can help you. It's also it's been a pipe dream of ours to develop a team that re- really represents the city. Uh, and he said, you know what? There's a team I'm really excited about that. Um, has starts it has to start in kind of the local league system but they have higher aspirations they have they're, they're a very ambitious team they have a very ambitious driven owner um, and it's a team called FC New Orleans and I, I mean it's, it's almost a blur I mean I feel like in the matter of, of days or weeks keep being in contact with the owner um you know, Jonathan kind of introduced me to Omar Romero, who's the owner of FC New Orleans. Uh, and he said, I, I think you guys have very similar views about the sport and where it could go and what the potential is in the city. And I'd like for you guys to sit down and see uh, see what you could do, see see what, you know, if your plans are kind of in line and, and where you can go from there. I sat down with Omar and, 
we talked things out. He told me his aspirations, and um, he's like, all right, I need you on my team. I don't care in what capacity, you know, name your own title almost, but I need you. I, I feel like your experience in the league, your experience in the sport will definitely help with where I'm trying to go with this team. So where, where Omar, yourself, where do you guys want to go? What are your aspirations? What do you dream about and, and talk about in terms of building? Obviously, I know this is your first year um, mm-hmm. playing in the Gulf Coast Premier League along with Tallahassee as well as Hattiesburg that are all, all new uh, clubs in the league. What, what, what are you guys you know, hoping to do, build as a club there in New Orleans? Well, we've got to aim high, right? I mean, we we have an NPSL team here in the New Orleans Jesters. They're currently I I I can't I don't really know why, but they uh, they're taking the season off. Um, so between us and, and Matagua, we're the highest level uh, the sport here. I mean, according to the USASA, the GCPL and the NPSL are now kind of in the same tier of soccer. Um, so that's not an issue, but. You know, the Omar and, and I mean, I, I have to say, I, I share this ambition, and it is very ambitious, um, is to bring, in the very least, to bring uh, a USL-level team here. Um, and for that, we have the talent base, and we have the different partnerships and sponsors uh, where now we are, like I said, or like you said, we're a new team, so we're building the infrastructure, um, you know, slowly but surely. Um, but we have... You know, we, we have the sponsorship, we have the player base, we have marketing techniques. Um, so a USL team is kind of almost a five-year plan. Uh, and again, it seems very ambitious, but we've got lawyers on staff now, lawyers on retainer. Um, an, an uncle of mine is the owner of a major uh, arena soccer league team down in South Texas. And so they're kind of helping us guide and helping us try to establish this infrastructure. And so we're, we're trying to kind of follow suit. And um, that's, that's kind of the, that's the goal. And like I said, it's ambitious, but that's where we're trying to go. So you, you guys are, are playing in the Gulf Coast Premier League this year and you're, you know, building, you know, keeping an eye on the future, right? Building towards a, a goal, a destination, a dream of moving up professional type soccer what do you see in the the gulf south uh region in terms of uh building an infrastructure and a network of clubs like that what's happening in the gcpl and in in terms of building scale size level etc what are you seeing in new orleans and the surrounding area in regards to that well, it's interesting. I feel like every um, every team has their their own strengths and, and weaknesses, and we're all working to kind of you know be stronger and, and be better representatives of, of our communities and of the league in general. Um, you know, my, my hat off or hats off to to the league. Um, over the course of a very few years, they've grown exponentially. Um, we're an incredibly large regional league. Uh, now I think we're helping the, the Great Plains Premier League start their own situation. Um, I think that, that that's incredibly important. I think there's a little bit to take from each team. You know, you look at, at someone like um, Port City, uh, Luke Berry, a great friend of mine, wonderful person. They have the infrastructure. They have an established fan base. 
and they have a, an incredible social media and web-based presence. That's something that you can take from there, extrapolate, and kind of apply to your team. You look at a team like AFC Mobile or even Tallahassee, and it's like very, very early start, um, and they have a fan base. They have a, an established fan base. They have um, kind of a fan section. You know, the Causeway Rebellion in AFC in AFC Mobile is is already pretty well regarded. Because of that, they have strong community partnerships and, and stakeholders. They have community representatives coming to their games. Um, you know, they they were very ambitious in their their preseason match. Um, you have to be right. You have to be if you want to grow. You have to keep challenging yourself. You have to kind of go out of your comfort zone. That's something that they have. You know, what we have here at FC New Orleans that I'm hoping you know we can kind of share our knowledge with with the rest of the with the rest of the league is that we have, um, you know, we've tapped into this almost this wealth of talent in the Latino community, uh, in a community that, you know, they, they work kind of lower playing, lower paying jobs that you don't see a ton of them. They're in the local leagues. Um, they're incredibly talented and they deserve the attention that they get. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, if you want to get into this just yet, but, you know, our, our base team, um, kind of our good, you know, five, six solid starters have all been through um, the, the professional tiers in Mexican and Central American soccer. Um, so we have that talent uh, that we want to keep kind of tapping into not only in New Orleans, but the rest of the Gulf Coast. And if we can kind of extrapolate or we can kind of get that knowledge of the infrastructure, the presence, the community involvement, I think we can all kind of help each other in that respect. You know, I I think that that's, that's awesome. And I think that what I'm seeing out of this league is exciting times ahead because there are a lot of clubs that are ambitious they're wanting to build, um, you know, the way the state of, of U.S. soccer is, you know, it seems like every week we've got a new lawsuit. There's another one that hit this week um, where the USL is now suing the UPSL. Um, and and so, it, you know, who knows where this whole enchilada is going to be in five years, um, you know, much less, you know, six months from now. But the thing that I am encouraged by is that clubs like FC New Orleans, Port City, Tallahassee, AFC Mobile, Gulf Coast Rangers, Hattiesburg, and so many others are are putting their heads down, getting in their community, working, hustling, making phone calls, building something on a local level, and then, you know, letting things kind of fall where they may and and continuing to try to make progress, continuing to try to build something, con- continuing to try to figure out what they can do, you know, you know, control what you can control, figure out the rest as it comes. And, uh, and I mean, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, you know, the quality of the league continues to, to increase. Um, the quality of play continues to increase. And I think, now we're starting to see the quality of kind of the off the field operations are starting to increase. You're starting to see higher and higher attendance um, at at some of these matches. And to put that in perspective, the the 
the Los Angeles Galaxy 2, often called Los Dos, um, their their highest crowd for this year, and they play in the, the USL Championship, the Division Two in the U.S., their highest crowd this year was just under 800 people, and it's when they played, wow. they hosted the Las Vegas Lights. Now, I was talking to Eric Winaldo, the coach of the, the Las Vegas Lights, um, uh, last week, and, and he was telling me about, you know, their experience there playing uh, in Los Angeles and, and, and you know, the crowd that – uh, size of the of the game and when you look at some of the attendance that you see in the Gulf Coast Premier League it is at or above that level and and so to say that there is you know um, a, a lack of interest in the south because of college football or baseball uh, etc to me is just completely false um Absolutely. You know, I think I think it's that 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 is a it's a massive, you know, if you if you looked at the Gulf South as a as a business and you were an investor and you were trying to find, you know, an, an, an under, um, you know, appreciated uh, asset, a, a business that was I wouldn't necessarily fully say it's underperforming, but it's it's certainly not getting its due. Right. Um, this region is like that kind of business where around the country, I don't think enough people know what's going on. And, and yet locally there, the, the ceiling is so much higher than I think even local people realize, even some of the clubs themselves realize like what is possible. If you can, if you're able to bring in a thousand, fifteen hundred people playing at this level with what's going on. Imagine what could happen in a year, two, three years from now, uh, as standards across the league continue to 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 get raised. The clubs themselves are continuing to get better at what they do. Um, you know, I, I I think that because of the dysfunction of the American soccer system, uh, and and it's unfortunate in so many ways. One of the silver linings to this dysfunction is you can do something incredible like build the Gulf Coast Premier League, build a network of clubs in this area and see some things happen without having to get permission to do it. Right. And you guys are doing that right now in New Orleans. When you look when you look at FC New Orleans as a club for the city, um, where are you going to get support? How are you getting into the community to, to build that support? How are you reaching out and, 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 and making a name for yourself uh, and telling your story to the, to the city of New Orleans? Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. And I know you've, you've spoken on, on, you know, a number of times about this, you know, the, the lack of the promotion relegation system that we have in, in the U S and so, what can we do as a league but just grow and almost, in a way, create our own kind of promotion system, you know, just grow the league to to be such a massive size to the point where we're kind of undeniable. We're a, we're a substantial league and we're representative of, you know, something better. Um, but, yeah, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, at FC New Orleans, we – we are our, our biggest goal in terms of community is to bridge that gap right? to, to bridge the gap that, that you see um, not only in, in New Orleans, but you see in other places in the South is this almost silent, silent 
um, you play over there, this other community plays over here, and we both respect each other, but we don't really get involved in each other's business. We're completely against that. We want to include, we want to be inclusive of everybody. And so what are we doing? We, um, not, not only are we going out into the community and, and providing kind of community events, uh, you know, to give you an example, after our match um, last week against Baton Rouge United, we were invited to, to do a, a smaller kind of shirt signing and gave away a couple of shirts at an indoor facility outside of Baton Rouge. Um, again, we're not even the Baton Rouge team, but we want to be the, the Louisiana team. We want to be a substantial name for ourselves. Now, you know, in terms of, of the the local community here in New Orleans, we are fortunate enough that our owner, Omar Romero, is the owner of the Latin Broadcasting Company. And so he can he can market, he can appeal, he can he he knows how to get the attention of the Latino community. And whenever he markets it both in English and in Spanish, both on social media and on the radio, all of our messages are in English and in Spanish. And through our different partnerships, through our different sponsors, we're tapping into all kinds of communities. Now if you look at, at, at our team, yes, it is it is a predominantly Mexican team, but we have also worked really hard on including local talent as well. We have um, we have Eddie Cho, a very talented left back, um, who is from New Orleans. He played at Roger State University in Oklahoma. Uh, came home. Uh, he's an incredible talent. We have uh, Ibrahim Belkush, who is of Middle Eastern descent, uh, but he went to Tulane University, and he's he's a, again another New Orleans boy and. You know, we're, we're trying to build this team that is representative of the community. And we have these different events. Um, we have, uh, like I said, sponsor restaurants. We're planning on hosting a number of events there. Um, just try, you know, expanding, trying to use all of our options, all of our resources that are at our disposal to gain support of all the different demographics in the city. That's fantastic. Um, when you when you set out to put a roster together, um, was that a big priority? You know, figuring out ways to bring in New Orleans guys. Obviously, you got a network of uh, contacts and players that you were interested in, but 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 making kind of a homegrown feel to the club was that was that also kind of equally as important when you guys were filling out a roster and figuring out you know what you wanted to put on the field as in terms of a product right you know initially it, it, it wasn't i'll be honest with you it wasn't a priority um when i came on we had kind of a very a very latino roster um but i mentioned it to omar i said well what how do you feel about making you know starting now why do we have to look into the future uh, in terms of being a more diverse team, why don't we start now? He said, Pepe, you go and, and do, you know, you know the people in the league, you know player, talented players, you know people from the local system. Go recruit them, include them in the team. You know, if our, if our coach, a very talented coach, Wilma Peralta, um, who was a U-1700 national um, World Cup winner, um, he said, if, if Wilmer likes them, then we'll keep them on the team. We give everybody a fair shot. And I think that's what's important. And that's something that's different from some of the other teams is that we give everyone a fair shot. We have, if we don't have, if you don't make it to the we invite you to training. 
um, at least one or two trainings for the coach to get a good feel. If you're not a good fit, you're not a good fit. That's the nature of competition. Um, but it's, it, ha- it has now become kind of a paramount um, priority for us is, is inclusion and, and diversity. And I think we're slowly building up to that. So as you guys are building and you're, you know, I want to go off the field for a second um, with the, your director of operations hat. Um, as you guys are building the club, what what are the things that you are doing? What steps are you taking, actions? Because I, I like to get insight from, you know, clubs like yours around the country because there's, there's always something that a club is doing that maybe other clubs could learn from uh, or, or adapt for themselves. What have you guys been successful at in terms of community relations, sponsors, uh, commercial, uh, you know, arrangements, et cetera, with, with your community? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's an excellent question. Um, there, there's no right way to do it. And there's no particular guide, right? Because all cities are different. All clubs are different and all club missions are different. Um, you know, like, like I mentioned, the, the, the kind of the radio ads, have gone a long way. We, you know, one of the, the Latino stations that Omar owns is the official um, Spanish broadcast home for the New Orleans Saints. And so he has a partnership with them. Um, and so we're, we're kind of in the working in, in terms of negotiating how we can appeal to the government in that way. We do share the same colors as the New Orleans Saints. We are black and gold. Um, so that goes a long way as well. Um, we have... You know, we've we've appealed to the local leagues as well, not only the soccer leagues, but some of the other social leagues so we can bring people in. Um, we can let them know that this is their team at the end of the day. And though we don't necessarily have some form of a um, kind of a season pass just yet or almost like a, like a community-owned um, sort of market fund, if you will, that is something that, that we've discussed in the past. Um you know, there there are a number of, of different different things that we're that we're trying to get going. A lot of things that are in the works. Particularly, we have some partners at Tulane University. Um, we would love it if the the beautiful Tulane football stadium called Yulman Stadium became our home. Um, we're in the works, um, and hopefully, I'm not giving too much away. Omar might get mad at me, but. Um, this is a beautiful, you know, NCAA Division One uh, football stadium, and um, we're we're kind of, you know, in talks with Tulane about using their stadium for um, our playoff games as well as potentially the GCPL championship match. Um, while we're at it, we've also, you know, spoken to some of the people at the Tulane Business School and how can we appeal to the university as a whole. Um, what ideas can they provide us with? So it's not only just people in the community, but also community assets, um, talented people off off the soccer field, which is something that that you know we've been spearheading, but that I've been spearheading kind of as a director of operations. Is yes, we we have appealed to the Latino community via the radio. How can we appeal to the local kind of you know? Um, American community, if you will, for lack of a better word. Um, and that starts at the university, the, ma- the major university in New Orleans, which is Tulane. 
um, and it also extends to some of the local other sports and social leagues. That's fan- that's fantastic insight there too, because everybody's got to understand the context that they're in, you know, and hmm. um, in, in New Orleans is its own animal, it's its own beast, and and if you don't know New Orleans, um, you know. And you go in and you try to do something that maybe worked in in Chattanooga or maybe it worked somewhere in Atlanta. It it may not go over exactly the same way. And so even though it may not be on an execution level, club to club, hey, I heard Pepe talking about this. Let's just go do that. It may not work where you are. And that's a good that's a good point. But but it's being able to adapt and, and contextualize an idea or, um, you know, seeing some success somewhere and going, okay, how could that work for us? How could we do that? How could we, you know, make it, you know, our own thing that works for us in our community, in our context, um, and, and in so doing, you know, make it better for, for where we are. And, um, and, and so, you know, going out, building those relationships with Tulane, building those relationships in the community, using the contacts of of the strengths that you have, the resources that you have, uh, even, you know, through your owner, uh, as well as, um, you know, through the, the people within the club itself um, is, is critical in order for, for you guys as FC New Orleans to be able to build success on the field as well as off the field. So, um, you know, I, I really like the insight that you that you shared on those things because it will, and, and continually I'm amazed at how much these kind of conversations are helping other clubs uh, figure out what they can do better. Um, and some of the things that I, I noticed from you tonight, or, I mean, uh, excuse me, this morning was the 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 aspect of being able to get out of your comfort zone, be intentional about being inclusive, getting into the community, still having a core you know ethos and essence of who you are, but embracing the the fabric of your context at the same time, being authentic. And, and and real to both of those things um in the end i think it's going to pay dividends for uh for you guys going forward so omar um thanks uh um, excuse me pepe thanks for coming on the show and to omar for uh for for connecting us for uh, for coming on the show this morning uh to to kind of talk about the project fc new orleans as well as as you know your background i, I think both of those elements uh, are are important pieces that American soccer needs to to learn more about and experience. Um, getting out in the community, getting out of your comfort zone, and, and building something and connecting with others in in what they're building, it makes us all better. Um, so you know, good luck with the the season uh, in the Gulf Coast Premier League this year. Uh, and, uh, you know, look forward to having you uh, back on again in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Daniel. Thank you so much. That was Pepe Serrano. He is uh, Director of Operations for FC New Orleans and uh, really do appreciate him 
coming back, I mean, uh, coming on the show. Look forward to having him come back on the show um, as uh, as they continue to go through the uh, the the season this year, and um, you know, um, as they continue to build for the future. I, I really like the project they're doing um, and and what they're building in in New Orleans. So. Thanks to, uh, to to Pepe for coming on the show and uh, for all of our guests this week for joining us. Uh, as always, you can uh, watch the show weekdays live at 9 a.m. Eastern on DanielWortman.com. Everybody have a great weekend. We will see everyone again on Monday.